Now let me introduce you to the author, Ellen Fitzpatrick. Hello, Ellen. Hi, how are you? Welcome to the show, and thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Before we get into your timely book, which is very timely, I think our audience will be very interested in what you have to say. Tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to write The High Glass Ceiling. Well, I'm a historian. I've been uh, a professor of history uh, here and there, most recently, uh, most recently for the last 20 years at the University of New Hampshire. Uh, my fields are in modern American political and intellectual history, and also I have taught women's history over the years. And I became interested in the project really uh, out of a sense of uh, kind of divide between my two areas of interest, that is, uh, historians who had worked on the American presidency had not written much about women, understandably. There wasn't a lot to say, or so it seemed, and historians of women had not written much about the American presidency, again, for understandable reasons. So that's how I came into this project. In your introduction, you tell us that over 200 women have sought the presidency since Virginia Woodhull sought the presidency. Who are these women, these 200? You don't really talk about them, but I was curious. Are they like most other women or most like other politicians? Did they do it because they were women or in spite of being women? What was driving? Do you have any kind of profile? Is there a profile of these women? Well, I don't, I didn't really look closely at all of them, but I did create a kind of uh, universe with my research assistant of all of these uh, people who had surfaced over, you know, a century and a half. And it was remarkable to me that there were as many as they they uh, turned out to be. Most of them were third party candidates, kind of fringe uh candidates who showed up on state ballots. They didn't gain any kind of traction. Um, and we don't know as much about them as uh, we ought to know. I think there's a great project in there for someone else, I might add. Um, but uh, there were a, quite, a, quite a large number of them. Uh, and they, they often emerged out of third parties, uh, particularly in the 20th century, the Socialist Workers Party, the Communist Party, um, often had women uh, in their leadership and nominated them uh, at times for vice president or for president. And so, um, you know, we don't know as much about them as I wish we did. But I thought that number was very interesting. I had no idea it was that many. I was floored by it myself. And, uh, you know, as I said, I think it's a great project for someone to look at further. Now, you zero in on three women, Victoria Woodhall, Margaret Chase Smith, and Shirley Chisholm. Why these three? These three, it seemed to me, emerged out of particular and important historical moments. And in that process, in the convergence between their own ambition, their historical moment, uh, and the larger political uh, you know, struggles of, of their time, they sparked a conversation about the notion of a woman president. And I thought that each of them crystallized in an interesting way what some of the uh, ongoing issues were around the idea of having a woman president. In the case of Victoria Woodhull, who emerges in Reconstruction, she really comes out of a kind of critical moment in the suffrage movement. 
In the case of Margaret Chase Smith, 1964, she runs in the Republican primary. He's coming out of the early second wave feminist moment. And in the case of Shirley Chisholm in 1972, he's very much a part of second wave feminism. So at each of those three moments, an interesting debate ensued, uh, or conversation, I should say, about uh, the notion of the woman president. Ellen, you start with Victoria Woodhull, a political and religious outsider. Yes. Very much America, so. Very radical in her her uh, politics and in her orientation to uh, her campaign. I want to know that she was also a self-made woman making her own fortune on Wall Street. She did, yeah. She's one of the more interesting, eccentric uh, characters in the history uh, that I write about, and I became very fascinated by her. She's well known to scholars of American women's history as a, mostly for her advocacy of free love, 19th century style. You know, she was a sexual radical, uh, which to her really meant that marriage should be able to be dissolved and that women should be able to go on to have other relationships. Uh, and that a relationship should last only as long as it was meaningful and fulfilling. Um, and she saw the institution of marriage as sort of a, a limiting, um, very limiting, in fact, on women in that regard. But she only arrived at that position uh, publicly and became an advocate for that after the downfall of her presidential run. And so in looking at this, what usually is seen as just a, sort of quixotic, symbolic, not very meaningful effort on her part to seek the presidency, I re-examined that and found some interesting things about her that I think kind of changed the arc of that story. Tell us something about her personality. She was a big personality and apparently, uh, by all reports, a very attractive woman. She was in her 30s um, at the time that she declared her intention to run for president in 1870. She had been the daughter of a uh, grifter. Her father was a kind of, uh, you know, uh, flimflam man. Her mother had some serious mental health issues. And her mother got her very involved, began taking her to uh, spiritualist meetings. And so she got caught up in uh, spiritualism along with her mother. And um, she was married off at 15 to a, a doctor who had been called in to treat her for a fever. He turned out he was very handsome and dapper, and the parents thought it was a good match. He turned out to be a morphine addict, a relentless womanizer, and uh, she had two children with him but left him. It was a traumatic uh, experience for her, and I think a radicalizing one. And then she went off to be a clairvoyant, um, and several other things, and she eventually makes her way to New York City, where she and her sister make the acquaintance of Cornelius Vanderbilt, one of the wealthiest men in the country, who finds that Woodhull is able to put him in touch with his dead mother, but perhaps more importantly, is a remarkably prescient source of stock tips. And so he decides to back her and her sister, and they open the first brokerage firm on Wall Street run by women. That's an amazing story. She's an amazing character and a really, really compelling figure. She runs as an independent. 
Why does she run for president? What is driving her? What are her issues? Well, she had a really interesting thought about this. Remember, it's during Reconstruction, and the Congress is debating uh, when Victoria Woodhull gets into the mix, the 14th and 15th Amendments to the Constitution. And the suffrage movement was quite divided on this question because, of course, the, the 14th Amendment was giving citizenship to African Americans and the 15th Amendment uh, essentially conferring the right to vote uh, or you know, making sure you couldn't prohibit it on the basis of uh, color race. Uh, so in any case, um, the suffragists wanted to get women enfranchised under the 14th or 15th Amendments, and when that didn't work, they sought a 16th Amendment. This is in 1870, 1869-1870, that would enfranchise women. And Woodhull had this, gets involved in the suffrage movement right at that moment. And she does two things that are interesting. First, she, uh, picking up on the ideas of others, this wasn't entirely original to her, but she gets support from uh, other male politicians in this idea. She wants to argue and she goes before Congress to argue. First woman to appear before a congressional committee to argue that women were already enfranchised under the terms of the 14th and 15th Amendments. And she just wants Congress to issue a declaratory act saying that they are covered by these amendments. Can you imagine if that had happened in 1870? It took until 1920 for women to get the vote. So she doesn't win, but she made a big splash in this appearance and in putting forth this petition. So he goes from there to uh, developing the, the, she had this insight that maybe it would be easier for people to, instead of get wrapping their head around a cause, the cause of women's equality, they might be able to wrap their head around a candidate who embodied that cause. And here she actually made the comparison to Lincoln and said, you know, maybe people in the abstract could not, you know, reject slavery, uh, but they could embrace Lincoln. Um, and so maybe they can't embrace women's equality, but they could embrace a woman presidential candidate. She, in other words, could embody a cause. And she puts herself forward to as a candidate for president to do that. How was her campaign received? Well, there was a tremendous amount of attention paid to her, and that's what's so fascinating about Woodhull. She uh, really sparked uh, a lot of conversation. There are hundreds of articles about her in this period in the newspapers discussing not only her, but this whole concept of a woman being president. And her position was, I can't vote, but I could be voted for. And so even though she couldn't vote for herself, she didn't see any reason why people would be prevented from voting for. And so um, what's fascinating about Woodhull is there was actually less sexism in those articles talking about her in 1870 than there was about Margaret Chase Smith in 1964. During Reconstruction, it was a time of, greater people, and people were saying, well, you know, uh, we've seen the end of slavery. We've seen the enfranchisement of African-American men. This, you know, maybe this is next. And 
you know, uh, of course there was ridicule and there was some hostility, but there was a great deal of intrigue and interest as well. What were her political views besides that she was a woman running for president? What other progressive ideas was she promoting? Yeah, the fascinating thing about uh, Victoria Woodhull is that even though she was herself, she became extremely rich uh, as a result of her speculating in uh, in bonds and gold and uh, in her stock ventures. She became very, very wealthy. She was quite radical and uh, concerned about the oppression of workers, um, very uh, interested in supporting the labor movement, wanted uh, internal improvements in the United States, was uh, arguing that we shouldn't be worrying about repaying the Civil War debt. It was fine to uh, compile some debt for the federal government to compile some debt in the interest of improving the infrastructure of the country. And um, she, uh, you know, was had quite a progressive uh, mindset. Which, which was which very was interesting because uh, here she is in Wall Street, which is very interesting because she's working in Wall Street and has become very wealthy. We don't think of Wall Street people as pro-labor. Yeah, I mean, think of like Carly Fiorina being a communist and you're getting closer to Victoria Woodhull. <laughs> you know? I know this is impossible to put these two things together, but this was what she was like. I mean, she was, she, in fact, uh, you know, joined an international uh, internationalist uh, uh, group after uh, her presidential run. And, you know, she was very, very radical. What happened to her campaign? She ends up in prison. What happened? Well, things didn't go well on the uh, she did some interesting things. She set up. She was very savvy. She started her own political party, which was there to promote her candidacy, the Equal Rights Party. And then she set up her own media operation. She created her own newspaper, which she claimed was nonpartisan except for one thing. Its uh, central focus was to make sure that she was elected president. So other than that, it was completely neutral. But it was an interesting journal uh, that she uh, established, the Woodhull and Claflin uh, Weekly, it was called. And that promoted her presidential candidacy. And she lectured, and she was widely sought after on the lecture circuit. So um, what happened was, uh, you know, again, getting a, a lot of attention. I mean, this was a very much a long shot. She wasn't, wasn't going to be elected, but nonetheless, she was you know, hitting some fastballs. And um, what happened was that her mother, um, who was a very troubled woman um, and was living with Victoria Woodhull and her second husband, a Civil War veteran named Colonel Blood. There's a kind of Dickensian quality to these characters in her story. She went down to the local, the mother went down to the local police station and complained that uh, her son-in-law, Colonel Blood, was trying to kill her, she thought. And the police began to investigate, and they discovered that Victoria Woodhull was living with two men, her current husband and her former husband. So not only Colonel Blood, to whom she was married, but uh, Dr. Woodhull was also in the household. It turned out that uh, Victoria Woodhull had brought him in. He was a morphine addict. He was dying at this stage of his life that was towards the end of his life. And she considered it an act of charity. She was looking after him. But it erupted into a huge scandal that this woman in Victorian America was living with two men. 
and that hit the newspapers. And uh, she was greatly criticized as being a woman of loose morals or, you know, lacking in virtue. Well, it won't surprise you from what I've said that she didn't take it sitting down. And so in retaliation for all of that scandal, which, you know, was widely covered in the newspapers, she lashed out at one of the most prominent Protestant ministers of her day, Henry Ward Beecher, um, and accused him of having an affair with one of his parishioners. And uh, as a way of saying that there was a double standard, he was attacking the double standard for men and women, that they were held to different standards of morality. And uh, she wrote about her accusations in her newspaper. It was circulate because it was circulated through the U.S. mail. She was arrested under the provisions of the Comstock Act for obscenity. And on election day in 1872, she was in prison. Let's move on to Margaret Chase Smith, who was a Republican from Maine who ran in 1964. What is interesting about her story and how did she get into politics? Yes, she was married to a congressman from Maine, a guy named uh, Clyde Smith. He was a representative. He was quite a bit older than she was. And um, she became quite infatuated with him as a young high school student, actually. And he was a man about town and had been very active in politics um, and quite quite interested in young women. So I took an interest in her as well. They didn't get married for a long time. They had a long extended courtship. But then she married him, and she went with him to Washington when he was elected to the United States Congress and ran his congressional office. Well, Clyde Smith, it turned out, uh, died in office. And shortly before he did, he he was said, by the way, uh, afterwards to have died of the congressman's disease, which supposedly was heart failure from overwork, but he in fact died of the other congressman's disease, syphilis. He had an advanced case of syphilis. Uh, I shouldn't say that, actually. I mean, I, you know, I don't mean to cast aspersions on our congressman, but you get the point that uh, she was not fortunate in her choice of husbands in the case of of Smith. So in any case, um, shortly before his death, he wrote... uh, to his constituents and issued a press release and said that he hoped in the upcoming election he was up for re-election and of course there'd be a special election held because he died in office that uh, they would vote for his wife because she shared his values she knew them she knew what mattered to uh, the people in the district and um, this was sort of uh, known this practice as the widow's mandate that is some women would get into Congress this way, and the parties, the major political parties, would sometimes uh, support that, and the women would serve as placeholders until an appropriate man could be found to run for the regular seat. So that's how Margaret Chase Smith came in. The Republican Party in Maine supported this, but the expectation was she would get out of the way when the regular election came along, and she didn't. She decided to pursue it and to run on her own, and she did so, and she was elected, and she wound up serving in the United States Senate eventually uh, longer than any other woman in the 20th century. 
She had a very long and distinguished career. She was not expected to accomplish anything as a widow of a deceased congressman. She was expected to keep the seat warm for someone else. What kind of woman was she that this expectation didn't stick with her? She moved beyond it. I think she enjoyed politics. She was very interested in the issues. She had, she had early in life had worked as a uh, for the um, the the CEO of one of the large uh, textile mills in Skowhegan, Maine. And she later talked about how she did the bookkeeping and um, kept the records of the firm. And she would talk about how. Uh, you know, sort of heartbreaking it was to see uh, the uh, textile workers coming in. This would have been during the Depression and uh, collecting their very paltry, uh, you know, uh, paycheck for the long hours that they were working. Her husband actually was quite liberal and had supported a lot of uh, the Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal legislation, and she went on to be a supporter of it as well. So she was a moderate Republican, very hawkish on foreign policy, um, but quite progressive. She supported a lot of LBJ's Great Society, too. So I think she had she had uh, causes. She had ambition. She had an interest in politics. She liked people, um, and she was very well-liked in Maine. She had a lot of challenges. She was the only woman in Congress at the time. What are some of the challenges, practical challenges of being the only woman? And then there were political challenges, too, to overcome. Can you talk a little bit about what the situation was for her that as the only woman there? Yes, she uh, was. She really felt uh, very aware that it was a men's club. Um, and she um, she was actually quite interested in women's issues. And among the first things she did when she got to Congress was to reintroduce the Equal Rights Amendment, which had been, you know, was this was sort of a ritual every year that it would be uh, reintroduced and then, you know, tabled soon thereafter or voted down. Um, but she... Um, she was uh, concerned during the Second World War about the status of women in the military, and that became a big issue for her. So she uh, pursued, she was extremely independent. She wasn't supported all that much by the party elites in her political ambitions. So in a sense, that freed her uh, to kind of go her own uh, route and the practical challenges were such things as not having a women's restroom anywhere near the floor. Uh, so she would have to go back her, to her office if she needed to use the restroom. And, uh, you know, it was very much a, a male-centered uh, place. She didn't challenge that head on, but she conducted herself with great uh, fortitude and uh, with this steely independence that really won the admiration of her colleagues and uh, the voters. Well, she also was in a situation where uh, she was not married. Correct. So she didn't have a spouse to take to events, to take to the White House. Yes, and there's this wonderful document that I found in her papers uh, in her library in Skowhegan, Maine, which was a... uh, 
actually a note uh, from uh, Jacqueline Kennedy when President Kennedy was in the White House. And uh, it's saying that, you know, Margaret J. Smith had been invited to a dinner dance at the White House. And the note uh, from Mrs. Kennedy said, you know, that the evening was likely to run late, that there was not only going to be a dinner, but there was dancing afterwards. And if she would like to invite a, a man to go with her to just send the name off. And what was incredible about this was not the note from Mrs. Kennedy, but the note to Mrs. Kennedy from Margaret Chase Smith thanking her profusely and saying that it was one of the most thoughtful things that had been ever done in all of, you know, for her in all of her years of uh, serving in the Congress, that someone would have thought of her, you know, being comfortable in that setting and that maybe she would want to bring someone with her. Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting scene that you described. Now, she was a champion for women, but she also... Uh, I want to bring this back this point. She was a champion for women, but she bristled at the idea that she was a feminist. Right. She rejected the label, which for her generation was very much associated with um, probably, I think, you know, for her, the uh, feminists of the early 20th century. And uh, not, of course, with the modern women's movement, although she rejected the label then, too. Um, so that's right. She didn't, her, her issue was this, and I think not atypical for, for women of her generation. She didn't want people to think that she cared about the cause and rights and needs of women above everyone else. She did care about women's issues, but because she was a woman in the Congress and in political life, I think she was afraid of being dismissed as a single cause or single issue candidate, as if, you know, you couldn't be a female holding office and have a whole range of interests and concerns, as is true, of course, for male politicians. So that was her worry, that somehow she would be marginalized because of her sex, if she was too closely identified with women's issues. And remember, without a large, you know, sort of uh, boisterous, aggressive women's movement, like second wave feminism was to support her in the 1930s and 40s and 50s. Now, in 1964, she decides that she's going to run for the presidency. Now, she's got a lot of things going against her, besides being a woman, is the issue of money. Uh, you have to have an incredible more and more money to run for president. What is her base? What is her, uh, you know, her voter base that got her that far? She had been in Congress for a while. She'd been a senator. Now she's going to run for president. What is her base? Well, she's got incredible loyalty in Maine. And part of her base is coming out of, um, she was actually quite supportive of labor, and uh, the tr trade unions weren't real happy with her and voting for Taft-Hartley. But otherwise, she had quite brisk support from organized labor. She also was greatly loved in Maine, where she kept very, she spent a lot of time going back to Maine 
and cultivating these relationships. And she had a very down-to-earth style. So she would go to these little, um, you know, church meetings and, and grain halls and so forth. And, and people would come in and would greet her. You know, it was like, hello, Margaret, you know, very, uh, very, very down-to-earth. Uh, and she also was helpful in bringing defense dollars into the state of Maine. Uh, which, of course, had the Bath Ironworks and had an air station there. And those were uh, the welcome source, of course, of jobs and uh, higher wages. So uh, she did a lot of good for Maine and uh, was greatly appreciated for having done it. And and a third, I shouldn't, shouldn't hesitate to mention this, but perhaps it should have come first, she had a lot of support from organized women's groups, she had herself been very involved in uh, the General Federation of Women's Clubs, and uh, although they were nonpartisan, a lot of club women really got down to work for her when she ran for office and campaigned vigorously for her. Yeah, of all the women that you talk about, she's the one that really reminds me the most of Hillary Clinton. Uh, just so many things about her. But I want to just ask you about how did the, the social and political situation change from Woodhall's time in 1870 to when a Smith was running for president? And what were the issues that were a little different? The situation was different. What, what was, what's the difference? Oh, it's a big difference. It's a very different historical moment. We're in the middle of the Cold War, of course. And um, Margaret J. Smith was very much a hawk. You know, from really um, World War II onward, she was very, very uh, supportive of an expansion of the American uh, national security state, essentially. And um, so she, and in fact, she uh, eventually was defeated in 72 over her ongoing support of the American presence in, in Vietnam, of the Vietnam War. So... She was a hawk on foreign policy, which didn't hurt her in the during the Cold War period. And uh, in terms of domestic issues, as I mentioned, she was quite supportive of LBJ's uh, Great Society. She was a supporter of uh, the of civil rights legislation. And, um, you know, so I, I would say, you know, moderate uh, to at times liberal on uh, domestic issues and uh, quite uh, quite aggressive. Uh, really aggressive on on foreign policy, and have to add, have to add, she also stood against uh, McCarthy. Critical thing because uh, this really made her uh, really made her reputation eventually. When she did it, however, she was extremely courageous, and she did she stood up to McCarthy before anyone else in the uh, the uh, Senate had done so in. Just a few months after uh, McCarthy had given his famous speech in 1950 in February in Wheeling, West Virginia, announcing that he had the names of communists that were currently serving in the State Department. And he was pursuing these investigations. By June, she stands up in the well of the Senate and challenges him. And she was able to enlist a few senators to sign on to her Declaration of Conscience, which is what she called the statement. Um, but she stood up and, without ever using his name, 
talked about the recklessness that uh, was abroad, really, and the way that in the land and the way in which people's reputations were being destroyed on the basis of no evidence, and uh, really talked about that this was no way for the Republican Party to try to gain power through what she called the four horsemen of calumny. You know, she was, you know, it's quite a remarkable speech. Let's talk about Smith's presidential campaign. What were her obstacles that she was not able to overcome? Issues of money and other things. Yeah, she, Margaret Chase Smith uh, thought that she could run a national presidential campaign or tried to in the way that she ran for office while she was in Maine. And she would not accept campaign contributions, for example. And she would send back even a $1 bill with a note of thanks saying, you know, I don't accept donations. So she um, also was very proud of her record in Congress that she had missed almost no votes. She was always present to vote on whatever pending legislation came before the Congress. So um, she was determined not to let her presidential ambitions interfere with her service as a senator. That had to come first, she said. So she's going to try to campaign while being in Washington, not accepting campaign donations. She also said she would make no campaign promises. So here's a woman who's basically saying, I can't be bought or sold. You know, I, I just am not, I don't operate that way. And politics, presidential politics, even though we didn't have all those primaries in 64, we had some. And it was becoming the case that it required more and more money because of the impact of mass media uh, to run for president and get yourself known and get out there. And uh, none of this was com- compatible with the approach that Margaret J. Smith was taking. Okay, let's move on to Shirley Chisholm. Shirley it was the Chisholm was the the first uh, first black woman to seek the presidency, and she was dealing with the double challenge of trying to overcome uh, race and gender, and to also overcome this her people seeing her campaign as largely symbolic. She was serious. This was not just a symbolic move. So can you talk about uh, Chisholm and how she got into politics and what kind of personality she was and what her political vision was? Well, Chisholm was the first African-American woman to uh, be elected to the Congress. And uh, she had uh, entered Democratic politics really in the 1940s when she was a student at Brooklyn College and she began attending the meetings of the local seventeenth um, Assembly District Democratic Club, which was run by an Irish political boss and his machine, and the neighborhood and the area in Brooklyn represented by this district was becoming, over time, increasingly African American. But they were uh, the citizens were sort of cultivated at at election time, but their problems otherwise she felt ignored. So. She was very concerned about uh, issues of economic inequality. She was virulently anti-war. And here you see a big difference between her and Margaret Chase Smith. Um, Shirley Chisholm gave her maiden speech in Congress by saying, 
that she would not vote for any appropriation bill that had any money in it for uh, military defense. So, you know, she uh, was so opposed to the war in Vietnam and so outspoken about it. And she also felt that there were enough laws on the books, but they just simply were not being enforced. And so part of what she tried to do as a congresswoman was to serve her constituents by making sure uh, that that the legislation that did exist uh, and the kinds, the safety net measures that did exist uh, would catch African-Americans and uh, racial minorities and poor people who, you know, were, were not benefiting from these programs. So concerned about, um, she was a, a reproductive rights uh, advocate, very strong on that issue, uh, very strong on um early childhood education, which was a favored cause of hers. Uh, So, you know, a a remarkably progressive uh, woman. Now, Chisholm had to deal with the fact that she was African-American and she's a woman. How did she use her her gender as a political asset? And how did she negotiate those alliances between is she serving women? Is she serving African-American? How did she had she had people who supported her widely uh, across the board. She did. But, you know, one of the things that in in retrospect she complained uh, quite bitterly about was the divisions among, you know, there were some feminists who were very drawn to her. It's 1972. The National Women's Political Caucus, of which she was a founder, is, you know, taken off. It's a it's really a heyday for uh, feminism. And so feminists who uh, thought it was great what she was doing um, supported her, but they didn't seem to get her, that she felt, always. Uh, it was an uneasy alliance, shall we say, between feminists and uh, then some of the civil rights activists who uh, were concerned about her ties to feminism. And she was like, how come I can't be in favor of both of these? You know, how come I can't be committed to both of these causes? So some of the male uh, colleagues that she had who were uh, civil rights activists would say, well, surely, you know, when it comes down to it, who do you care more about? Do you care about the women's issues or do you care about your commitments to our community? And she was like, I care about both. And feminists who um, didn't seem to get along uh, easily with uh, some of the uh, civil rights uh uh, leaders that she uh, allied with as well. So it was a very uneasy set of alliances for Shirley. She talked at length about how hard it was to bring these constituencies together. She also had a lot of support from college students. But she was quite hobbled in her campaign as well by the lack of financial support, by the lack of uh, support from you know, the uh, inner circle of the Democratic Party and her, her difficulty in really mounting a campaign that could be effective in the primaries, which, again, by 72, this involves quite a bit of, of money. Tried to, to fund her campaign on her American Express card. Not recommended, by the way, unless you have a very high uh, uh, credit limit. One thing that you talk about is the fact that all these women and these three women that you focus on, uh, a lot of their challenge was structural. It wasn't that they didn't have the grit or the uh, 
the determination or they weren't ambitious enough or intelligent enough or any personal sort of failing, but they were entering into a structure, a political structure that was very difficult to navigate unless you had a lot of money, a lot of connections, uh, and were really savvy in just the political machinery. Well, and, you know, the overarching difficulty was also the fact that the public opinion polls showed that there was a lot of resistance among Americans to the idea of there being a woman president. And I feel that part of this came from the fact that the American presidency as a role combines, you know, two important and central features. The president is both head of state but also commander-in-chief of the military. And there had long been doubts about whether women were equal to that task. And once the Cold War, once we become a nuclear power, the Cold War is underway, there are all these doubts like, would a woman, quote, push the button? Uh, Geraldine Ferraro was asked this famously when she ran as uh, Walter Mondale's running mate. And she replied on Meet the Press, would you be asking me that question if I wasn't a woman? You know, your doubts are coming from the fact that I'm a woman. So um, that was a big barrier for any woman who was running. These The public opinion polls only began to shift in the late 60s and early 70s. And um, as, you know, uh, so the political parties were like, are we going to nominate a woman with all this resistance to even the idea of it? It was, you know, they they didn't want to put their money on what they felt would be a surefire loser. Also, how, how did women historically responded to women candidates? Were women any different from men? They just kind of followed with with the, the sort of the standard opinion about women in the in that position. They became different, but not until really the 1970s. In fact, there were some periods when these polls were taken where men were more supportive of the idea of a woman president than were women. So certainly the, the notion that women, you know, you have a woman presidential candidate and all women are going to be enthusiastic and vote for her. Well, that's been clearly disproven in the current election. And it was equally uh, outlandish, you know, historically. That's never been the case. But what happens in the 1980s is a gender gap, a clear gender gap begins to emerge. And women do start voting differently in presidential elections than men. And they also vote more often. They they turn out in these elections more often, and they more often vote Democratic than men do. And so... In, in time, this helps to uh, the widening, the changing of the rules in the Democratic Party after the disastrous 68 convention in which uh, decisions are made that, you know, now the state delegations have to include more minorities, they have to include women. That begins to open a way for uh, more women and minorities to enter into the the higher circles and the deliberations of the Democratic Party and eventually the Republican Party. And that makes it possible for women to get some traction. Okay, so now we're going to talk about the current election. I can't let you go without talking about the current election. We've got Hillary Clinton here who who ran in 2008 against uh, Obama uh, 
for the Democratic position. Now she is the Democratic candidate for president. And it money doesn't seem to be a problem for Hillary. She apparently is. By the way, amazing. But she's being attacked, of course, for this. Right. But she she has she has, doesn't have that problem that women in the past have had. Right. She's got experience. She's got grit. What are her challenges? She's got the gender gap on her side. She's got. Yeah. And she's also got a man who's uh, who is uh, she's running against a man who is almost like an uber, you know, man, super macho kind of guy. Right. Which enhances, I think, uh, maybe her position in some way. So well, what do we so, have here? Well, we got a very interesting situation <laughs> in which I think one of the most fascinating things about all this is that Hillary Clinton has overcome the obstacles that sunk every single woman who came before her. That is... She was able to put the money together, completely unheard of. At the level, Elizabeth Dole was forced out on this. Uh, you know, Carol Mosley Brown was forced out on this. Uh, Patricia Schroeder. Along comes Hillary. She's able to raise the money. She's also got the experience at all levels, you know, uh, as Secretary of State in the Senate. She became, she got the national profile through the two terms of her husband's presidency when she was first lady. Now, you know, that came with a lot of baggage, obviously, but it also made her more, it, it gave her a national recognition that any presidential candidate to really compete has got to have, and she got that too. People forget that, you know, Hillary Clinton has figure to the Gallup poll takes this poll of the most admired women in the world by Americans. Hillary Clinton has appeared on that list more times, I think 20 plus, than any other woman in America since the, the poll was first conducted. So uh, she really became very well known to American people. And um, she had the support of the elite of the Democratic Party. Also, very hard to come by. And she got that in part uh, through the Clinton machine and the connections that she made through her husband, but also from running in 2008 in those primaries and amassing more votes than any candidate in a presidential primary in American history ever got, male or female, 15 million votes or 18 million votes in 2008. Incredible. So um, she was able to show the party elite that she could get the votes, that she could overcome that barrier. So what's remarkable is that in this particular campaign, each of those assets have become the grounds of tremendous criticism. So she's got the money, but she's being attacked for being too close to Wall Street. She's got the support of the Democratic elite and the party elite to insider, to establishment, to Washington base. Um, she has the national profile, but she's carrying all the baggage of the scandals that have followed the Clintons and that have surfaced through her husband's presidency. Has the foreign policy experience, but is being um, tagged with 
what some perceive as the failures of the Obama administration foreign policy with her vote for the war in Iraq. Um, so, you know, these assets um, have have been, you know, kind of turned on their end. I can tell you that without those things, she wouldn't be in the mix. So take it or leave it, like her or hate her, without them, we wouldn't be having this conversation about her. Okay, what do you think, what do you think, uh, if she gets elected, uh, if she becomes President of the United States, how is this going to affect women in America? And I'm, I'm, I'm a little skeptical about whether it's going to make that much of a difference. Uh, one of the reasons is, of course, is what happened with Obama was being the first African-American president. Uh, it seems like eight years later we have race issues that are even worse than when we started. Yeah. And so I'm not sure if um, having a woman president is actually going to be anything beyond just a symbolic breakthrough through what you call the glass, you know, the highest yeah. glass ceiling. It's look, it's not going to solve the problems of women's inequality in the world and uh, all of the issues that we know to exist still um, and the barriers that we would all like to see. I assume many would like to see removed. Uh, and in the case of Obama, uh, I don't think that the racial problems are worse. I think they're more out in the open. If you look at the racial history of this country, the election of the first African-American president was a highly significant threshold to have crossed. And I feel the same way about uh, Clinton, whether she makes it or not. The election of the first woman president will be equally significant. If she is elected, she will end her first term and and the same years, it will be the centennial of women's suffrage. And if you think about the roles of women over the course of that 100-year period, there's been extraordinary change. Same is true in terms of African Americans and the country's efforts to deal with our tortured racial history. So is it perfect? Are these candidates perfect? Does any one president or presidential candidate somehow themselves embody, as Victoria Woodhull hoped she could do, a, the cause in some perfect way that everyone can rally around? No. But um, nonetheless, I do think that the crossing, crossing of the threshold matters. It isn't going to solve all those problems, but it does remove the sense that we are a fully democratic society, at least in appearance, that one can somehow break into uh, and compete uh, and win occasionally and uh, in, in these political contests. And I do think that matters. So do you think that uh, uh, Hillary Clinton's gender will in any way impact how she does her job. And that sounds like, seems like a sexist question that I'm asking. Um, but is there, is there any, anything that she's going to bring to the job uh, that a man would not bring to the job? And, I, and I, I really ask that because I think a lot of people are asking that question. I think inevitably it will, and that she is very much a product of her generation. And, uh, you know, the, the aging baby boomers, myself among them, who lived through the changes of the modern women's movement, her commitments 
to reproductive rights or commitments uh, to um, women's health uh, issues or her strong interest in um, family and um, uh, children's uh, issues as well, I think um, should make a difference between someone who does not share those views. Yeah, I do. I do think that that will matter. I think it is true, as you suggest, however, that there's going to probably be a lot. We're not going to see, you know, the whole gender issue is now resolved. We're going to hear a lot and it's going to be very unpleasant. And uh, there may be an uptick in sexism uh, in the conversation around her. But she's she's a pretty tough customer. And, uh, you know, we'll, she'll survive that. And I, I would imagine would deal with that pretty well. And, you know, let me add here that all of these women that I have written about, or I should say none of them would have said vote for me because I'm a woman. But all of them would have said, you can't factor it out of who I am and what it is I have tried to do with my political life. And that's true of Hillary Clinton as well. Well, thank you, Ellen, uh, for a wonderful conversation. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Gender Studies. I welcome your comments. You can contact me through my website at lillianbarger.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger. Thank you.